Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to not just another edition, but the 200th edition. Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kira Mulvaney. And shortly we'll pat ourselves on the back for hitting this milestone, episode number 200. And tell you what we have in store for you to celebrate the occasion. But, uh, Eric, chatted for a couple of weeks. So I have to start the pod with a funny little anecdote. Um, The other weekend, Easter weekend, actually, my phone rings and I see that it's it's Colonel Bob Sheridan who's calling me. Mm. And honestly... I was a little nervous that I figured somebody had listened to our podcast and told him that you were, you know, poking a little bit of fun there <laughs> at his recent on-air outing the other week. And I figured he'd heard about it and he was going to be all, Kieran, we're friends. I've always been nice to you. How, did, how could you do this? But so I let it go to voicemail, of right. course. <laughs> and I listened to the voicemail and no, it just he was just on an Easter vacation to the Vatican. And mm. he said he was thinking of his Irish friends. And he wanted to give me a call to wish me happy Easter. So wow. not for the first time I listened to that and felt about two feet tall. <laughs> um, so you know, taking, taking a full six inches off your real height. <laughs> that's huh? right. I was going to say, it's a lot easier for me to do that than Sebastian Fondora, for example. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I think, and maybe this is a testament to just what a nice person I allegedly am or just my refusal to do any of the, you know, difficult stuff mm-hmm. but i don't think i don't think i've ever had an angry phone call from anyone that i've written about or talked about um nobody right calling me up to chew me out and never want to talk to me again uh i kind of suspect you have <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a reasonable suspicion um yeah i mean it doesn't happen too often but 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 i can think of two off the top of my head um one of them barely counts because it was Lou DiBella you know getting, oh, yeah. getting an angry call from Lou is a rite of passage in this business right. and it was kind of a misunderstanding oh plus... that's right that so that that was the with our HBO podcast well that, that yeah there was... were two different ones there was one okay. where he was really angry about I think it was something you said and yes. uh, and it got she... excised from the podcast I believe yeah and then there was another one in it was this was the one I'm thinking of because uh, for that one he didn't call me this one was when my Hamed Kelly podcast posted and I tweeted something about uh, how you have to hear Lou DiBella yelling on this podcast he steals the show and he misinterpreted it as me focusing on this caricature of him as the guy who always yells and he got really upset about the tweet and then I kind of talked him down and it turned out he was like running a fever and wasn't really himself. And the, and the way that I worked my way out of that one was at some point he, in the conversation, he said like, he, he's sick of being misrepresented by writers. This goes all the way back to the whole thing with Steve Kim that led to a oh, lawsuit. Right. And, and so I, I broke the tension by saying, uh, please don't ever use my name and Steve Kim's name in the same sentence again. Right. And he laughed at that. And then we were, 
Uh, okay, but so that again. So, so he responded to being upset at being caricatured as somebody who <laughs> shouts a lot by calling you up to shout at you. It's it's a little ironic, yes. Okay, all right, that's yes. so clear. Carry yes, on. Sorry, we are. So yeah, but that doesn't count because it's Lou. Uh, if right. you haven't gotten an angry phone call from Lou, you're you're not you're not trying hard right. enough. The other one though is a really fun story. Uh, this was when I was at the ring, um, maybe 2002 or so. I got a phone call at the office from an excitable fella you may remember named Norman Stone. Stoney. Uh, yes. Now, for those who don't remember him, this was John Ruiz's trainer who had the all-time most Bostonian Boston accent. <laughs> um, and he starts cursing me out. F this, F that, you F in this, you F in that. And I'm kind of trying to calm him down and, and get to the bottom of what he's so mad about, but it's not working. He starts saying he wants to come to our office and take me out to lunch just so he can dump a plate of spaghetti on my head. <laughs> I swear to God, this happened. That's what he said. Um, finally, I get to the bottom of what he was so mad about. And A, he admits he didn't actually read it himself. Someone just told him about what was written. And B, it was some line about his then newly shaved head looking like a giant pimple, which I didn't write. Bill Detloff wrote the line. Oh, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> right. So, uh, but th but anyway, this turned into a classic case of my non-confrontational tendencies working for me. I didn't yell back at him. I just heard him out. I was amiable. I cracked a joke or two. And by the end of the call, he wasn't mad anymore. And he said he looks forward to seeing me at the fights. Norman Stone, ladies and gentlemen. Wow. <laughs> One of the all-time uh, great characters in boxing. Whatever happened to him, I wonder. Do you I, know? Haven't, I haven't heard his name in a while. Uh, I guess uh, not Not to besmirch his training abilities, but it, he, he's one of those trainers who was really connected to one fighter yeah. who made it, not a whole stable of fighters who made it. Yeah, indeed. So, but uh, by the way, um, before we get into the whole episode 200 of it all, um, I, I got to say, I listened to episode 199. Uh, thank you for holding down the fort while I was on vacation. And... Uh, Barry Tompkins was great. That oh was my such an enjoyable listen. You're always in good hands with Barry. Any broadcast or podcast, he's like listening to smooth jazz. And Oh, um, my goodness, yeah. And, you know, I, you guys joked about uh, him replacing me. I would feel threatened about my job because he was instantly better at this than I am. But I'm feeling secure because I know Barry has much better things to do than host a podcast. So I, I'm not worried that he's coming for my gig. It's it's frankly beneath him. Um, which blows me away about the fact that he was so – he needed no persuasion to do it, right? And the fact that he's Barry Tompkins. Mm -hmm. He's already in the Hall of Fame. Right. Like, he's, he's fine. He doesn't need to be slumming it with us. And, and especially to do it the day after uh, a, a fight card – part of which he'd called after which he had not felt well right he'd gotten like a couple of hours of sleep flown from from dallas to the bay area and he was still you know and he even sent me a note he goes yeah i, I wasn't feeling really well during the pay-per-view but we'll do what we can and just turned it on just like that and did it anyway no reason yeah. to other than the fact he's an exceptionally nice guy yeah so yeah that was fantastic and very very grateful to barry Tompkins for doing that but um yeah so there you were gone last week yeah. and so i have to ask how was it hanging out with all the groomers at disney world <laughs> yeah um i didn't hang out with uh, the groomers directly as far as i know um <laughs> but so yeah it was really great though to just 
great to get away. Um, uh, you know, yeah. Who who knew when we booked the trip that we'd be <laughs> engaging in the two most politically controversial activities on the planet, patronizing Disney World and wearing masks on airplanes. Um, but um, it was a lot of fun. Also a lot of walking. But uh, but the kids loved it, other than maybe all the walking. And there was one thing we did that made me think of you, Mr. Mulvaney. Um, the first night, we went to Disney Springs, which I didn't know existed. It's like a giant outdoor mall with tons of restaurants and some high-end shops. It actually felt a little like walking around a huge Vegas casino, mm. except outdoors and, and way more kids and families around. Um, so for dinner that first night, my wife made us a reservation at a restaurant in Disney Springs called Raglan Road, an Irish pub. Mm-hmm. And we loved it. Uh, the food was great. There was an acoustic trio playing Irish songs, some traditional, some hits by the cranberries. Um, there were Lord of the Dance style dancers getting the whole restaurant clapping along. And uh, you know I'm not a beer drinker, but I decided to order their Raglan Road Signature Collection Beer Flight. Four mini glasses of beer, I think six ounces each. Uh, There was a stout, a pale ale, a red ale, and a cider. So I guess not all beer. Three beers and a cider. Uh, But they were delicious. Maybe not the red ale. That was only so-so. But the other three, outstanding to my amateur palate. And I finished them all. Um, So, Kieran, I have to get your insights. Does this sound like the most authentically Irish experience you've ever heard of? It doesn't sound like the least authentically Irish experience <laughs> okay. I've ever heard of. I remember when I uh, was visiting a friend in LA and he wanted to take me to a, quote, traditional Irish bar. And we got there and I saw the neon sign in the window saying, cold Guinness served here. And I sighed a little inside. <laughs> Guinness should never be served cold, ladies and gentlemen. Is but it room room temperature is the proper Guinness? Okay. All right. See? There. I, I knew something. But having I've never been to any of the Disney properties. But from everything that I hear, um, you know, I don't think I could ever handle I, I hear all these things about these long lines to go on the rides and all of this right. kind of stuff. But but the general experience, like I hear that yeah, like the restaurants are great, the rooms are great and all of that. Our buddy Ed Mulholland loves it, like mm-hmm. goes to Disney World and Disneyland whenever he can. It does sound like it's a pretty amazing experience, especially if you've got a family. Yeah, you just have to like accept in advance, okay, I'm going to be spending a lot of money. I'm just taking a big mm. hit hit on this one financially to do it. And yeah, there's a lot of standing in lines, but it's so much better than it used to be with all of the various fast passes and ways you can oh, okay. res- you can reserve a few like lightning passes or whatever they call it to to kind of skip a few of the longer lines throughout the day. So Like I remember as a kid going to not Disney specifically, but some amusement parks, you would just if you wanted to do all the roller coasters, it was a two and a half hour line followed by another two and a half hour line. And you got like four roller coasters in and that took the whole day. This is much better. The the longest line we waited in was about an hour. Oh, okay. All right. And probably people who are listening to the podcast are wondering, how long do we have to wait until they start talking boxing? <laughs> Maybe the whole podcast. Maybe, Maybe. it's our 200th edition. That's right. That'll be one. <laughs> All right. Yeah, let's get on with that, I suppose. Okay. Um, uh, it is, as we mentioned, our 200th episode. Uh, we do have a, a quite a lot lined up. Um, so we wanted to do something a little different than usual in terms of an interview segment. So we've kicked this idea around for a little while. Episode 200 seemed the perfect place for it. Yep. It is the Showtime Boxing Podcast Morning Combat Crossover Pod. Uh, Both Brian Campbell and Luke Thomas, hosts of the award-winning Morning Combat, will join us to talk about their loves of both boxing and MMA and much more. Uh, We're really looking forward to that. Uh, Also, I have two challenges for Eric. This is what happens when you're away for a week. You come back and you get two (laughs) challenges. Um, I'll assign him next week's top five list. 
And I'll put him on the spot with our second edition of Make the Match. We've got some news to cover, including Mike Tyson losing his call, perhaps very justifiably, on an airplane. We'll preview two outstanding fights, Shakur Stevenson versus Oscar Valdez and Katie Taylor against Amanda Serrano. But let's start with the heavyweight championship of the world, which Tyson Fury defended successfully on Saturday for maybe the final time. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that question in a bit. But first, let's talk about the fight itself. Uh, in front of more than 94,000 fans at Wembley Stadium, Fury turned away the challenge of Dillian White via sixth-round TKO, the end coming on a right uppercut. Uh, White fell hard, got up, but stumbled forward as the referee was nearing the end of the count, prompting an easy call to stop the fight at 2.59 of the round. Prior to that spectacular finish, it was mostly a dull fight. Fury was well in control, Things got chippy in the fourth, and a Fury cornerman even threw a cup of water at White. Uh, but otherwise, it was mostly forgettable until that right uppercut, which elevated Fury's record to 32-0-1 with 23 KOs and dropped White's to 28-3, 19 KOs. Kieran, give me your breakdown of Fury's performance. What did you like? What didn't you like? And were you disappointed in White's ineffectiveness? Yeah, White was disappointing. Um, he didn't really appear to have a game plan of, of any kind other than boxing as a southpaw in the opening round. Um, he appeared to be reliant on winging his overhand right, um, and he threw that from far too far out all the time. So it was very easy for Tyson Fury to just step aside and uh, and see it go whizzing by as, as Dillian White went stumbling past him. Um he didn't appear to know how to close the distance or get past Fury's jabs. He, he honestly appeared to be steadily acquiescing, as, as I thought, as the bout went on. And, you know, it's interesting. He, as we talked about before, he hadn't done any media or public appearances for the fight until the last couple of days. And, and at the weigh-in, you know, everything seemed very cordial and friendly. And, and maybe that was the problem. Fury mm. showed him a lot of respect. Maybe White needed more of an edge, needed to have a reason to dislike him. But... You would have thought he'd be able to raise his game for this fight. He'd been waiting for another shot at the heavyweight championship for years. Um, he'd been sort of standing in line waiting for for the Fury Wilder thing to work itself out. You would think, having finally had it, he, he would have done it. But I don't know. He, he's a mercurial type, and he seemed a bit ambivalent about it all from the beginning. So I, I don't know. But all of that said, you really have to, instead of really blaming White for not performing, I think you really have to give credit to Fury for not letting him perform. Um, I mean, he showed... Once again, what an extraordinarily difficult puzzle he is to solve. Um, he's huge, of course. Um, he has these tremendous defensive skills and reflexes. Good jab, a herky-jerky movement. As Shakur Stevenson, who we will talk about later, noted in this week's Tweet of the Week, I have never seen nothing like Tyson Fury before. <laughs> he's amazing. Um, as we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, I love it when fighters recognize fighters. Boxers know when they're seeing something special and they know that Fury is, is unique and special. Look, he was in control of this fight from the beginning. It, it was never exciting. And a lot of that is on white. But look, Fury knew what he was doing. He was untroubled. Uh, he was steadily setting white up. He'd been jabbing away and then sliding off to one side, lulling white into thinking he was just going to get jabbed to death. And then suddenly he was waiting for that moment to not slide to one side after jabbing, but to launch that right uppercut that was just a fantastic, fantastic shot. And I, I think it says a lot about him that he was able to face a top contender like White. And White is a top contender and boxed completely within himself mm. before finishing it off. Um, you know, the one thing that you do wonder with, with Tyson Fury is 
he can do so many different things, obviously. But key to everything for him is his reflexes and his defense, his ability to just slip punches. You know, it's abnormal for any heavyweight, let alone one his size. Um, obviously, there's more to him than that. He, as Barry said last week, he can be a dog in the ring when he has to be. But you do wonder, should he start to lose those reflexes? Does he start like Roy Jones to start losing the whole package, you know? And does he maybe in the back of his head know that at 33, that time mm. may be approaching, even if there's no obvious sign of it, which sort of brings us to the big question. Is this the last time that we will see Tyson Fury in a boxing ring? He, he said throughout the lead up that this would be his final fight. In the ring afterwards, he said he promised his wife he was going to be done after the third Wilder fight, but instead elected to fight one more time in England. And he did that and he's done. Then just a few seconds later, he brought Francis Ngono up and said, oh, look, we're going to do a hybrid MMA boxing fight to see who's the baddest man on the planet. Um, but then afterwards, in subsequent interviews, including with our friend Gareth Davis, he was back to being very definitive about being done. So... What do you suspect will happen? Is he retiring? Is he fighting in Ganu? Is he going to continue fighting heavyweight boxers? Or is he actually walking away at 33? Well, as the betting man that I am, uh, I would bet against him walking away. Um, I actually appeared on another boxing podcast on Friday. I cheated on you. Uh, our friend uh, Curran Batia's podcast, hmm. Ask the Experts, which um, I guess he ran out of experts, so he asked me. <laughs> um, the main topic was the betting odds on Fury White. But we did also discuss Fury's retirement talk, and I'll repeat one point I made in talking to Curran, which is that I think it depends a fair amount on the result of Alexander Usyk, Anthony Joshua, mm -hmm. too. If Usyk wins again, maybe Fury says, nah, that one doesn't get my juices flowing, never mind, I really am retired. But if AJ wins and Fury mm -hmm. can suddenly make what, $100 million for right. the biggest fight in British boxing history and a fight that I guarantee you he's confident he would win. Yeah. I mean, I'm fairly confident Fury yeah. would win it, so I can only imagine how confident Fury himself is. I'm almost certain Fury sticks around for that fight. Um, also, maybe he really is serious right now at this moment about retiring. I don't think he is, but but let's just say that he is. Of That's where his mind is. This is a man who has proven in the past he's in a better place when he has a fight to train for Absolutely. and motivate him. So, yeah. yeah, like without boxing motivating him, he went yeah. to a dark place in 2016, yes. 2017, a, a little like Johnny Tapia. Boxing keeps him out of trouble. Yeah. So if he walks away, you know, six months from now, say he's 350 pounds and he's struggling with depression and thinking about using drugs, his wife, Paris, who is the one who wants him to retire... She just might want him to unretire under yeah. those circumstances, I would think. So, so there's that factor. And then there's his boxing legacy. Um, Fury's a guaranteed Hall of Famer. First ballot, no question. And he's going down as the best heavyweight of his era. Also, no question. But now we're starting to hear all-time talk. Is he in the top 10 all-time? That question is just now starting to surface. And I think in terms of ability and how he matches up with other great heavyweights... He probably is in the yeah. top 10. But in terms of resume, he isn't. He, he beat one Hall of Famer, Vladimir Klitschko. And otherwise, Deontay Wilder's the only opponent who even has a chance of getting his name on the Hall of Fame ballot, I would think, out of everyone Fury's fought. It doesn't compare with Holyfield's resume or Lennox's or, or George Foreman's, etc. So it makes a huge difference to his legacy to add either Usyk or almost certainly a Hall of Famer himself, mm -hmm. or AJ, a guy who I think at least gets on the ballot. 
and unify all of the belts against either one of them. I, I think there's still a lot to be gained from fighting on. That said, you know, hey, good for Tyson Fury if he never takes another punch and is able to stay in a good place mentally. That is a fantastic story if that's how this ends for him. Um, and I, I guess I have to quickly address this Engano thing. Um, they're talking boxing rules with MMA gloves. I would think if, that Fury's a huge favorite under those parameters. Maybe it happens. It's not my first choice. It is an interesting spectacle. And I guess it would count as not being retired, even if it's not technically a boxing match. I'm not I'm not quite sure how to categorize that in terms of whether he's retired from boxing if he does that with Nganu. But yeah, lot lot to sort of assess here. But when they add it all up, I would be pretty surprised if he never fights again. Yeah, I think so. He strikes me as somebody, and I think this is not uncommon with boxers at, at a particular point, who would quite like to be retired. Mm-hmm. But wanting to be retired or thinking it sounds like a good idea and then pulling yourself away from it are two entirely different things. Like I remember the first time that Floyd said that he was retired and he actually started crying at the post fight press conference. Right. Nobody believed that he was retired, but a lot of us believed that he believed he was retired. Mm. And, and I, and I wonder if, you know, there's there's an element of that, and I I do I did think about that too, Eric. That that thought of he he's he's been quite open about the fact that he gets into a dark place without boxing. So does he feel that he has something to 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 take that place? At some point, he'll have to find something to take right. that place. You know, is he in a just a better place mentally and emotionally than he was five or six years ago? Um, I, I don't know, but I could also see that in his head he would almost be retired, but. Oh, I'm retired, but I'll come out of retirement just for this one fight against AJ. And then it's, okay, I'm retired again. Oh, okay, I'll come out for this one. (laughs) One of those kind of a deals. Right. I don't know. But he's also, talk about, you know, marching to the beat of your own drum. He's a very different individual, Tyson Fury. And he's also the kind of person that I could believe. He says, well, I promised my wife. And that's what I do. That's, That's what you do. You promise. I could see him just doing because he's a different kind of guy. So I doubt that he's done. But I also wouldn't be super shocked if he is. I that's that's a great piece of analysis that he's just different from every other boxer and every other human, and we shouldn't assume anything based on historical patterns of other fighters. But I guess I would push back on the the well, I promised my wife factor because apparently he already promised her once and already <laughs> broke that promise once. So I don't think that's go- that he's going to be held to that necessarily. Yeah, it's like Bernard promised his mom that he wouldn't fight past forty, right? <laughs> right. And it turned out he didn't fight past 52. Uh, (laughs) All right, let's uh, look ahead to next Saturday's fights. And uh, no heavyweight championship of the world, nothing of that magnitude, but still two absolutely mouthwatering main events that every fight fan is looking forward to. Let's start with the one that will go off last, as the promoters and broadcasters have vowed to stagger their start times. Let's talk about the fight at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas on ESPN to determine the number one 130-pound boxer in the world. Shakur Stevenson, 17-0 with 9 KOs against Oscar Valdez, 30-0 with 23 KOs. In the TBRB rankings, Valdez is number one, Stevenson is number two. They'll recognize the winner of this fight as the champion. The odds makers have Stevenson as a healthy favorite here. The best price I'm seeing on him is minus 440, and on underdog Valdez, you can get up to plus 380. So two questions, Kieran. Are you surprised Stevenson is that big of a favorite here? And 
Have you reassessed Valdez and his win over Miguel Burchelt at all and downgraded him since Burchelt's subsequent loss to Jeremiah Nakatila? Or is that overthinking it and overanalyzing it? Yeah, I am surprised that it's that wide. Uh, uh, I would consider Stevenson the favorite, but, you know, I, I have to imagine that those odds are going to close as Mexican money starts coming in. Mm. Um, I would have expected, I don't know what you think about this as the betting expert, something more along the lines of like a minus 240 plus 220 kind of a spread. Uh, that's sort of the degree of favorite that I regard Stevenson. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, uh, that, that's kind of in the ballpark I might have expected. I mean... I, I think these odds are actually very accurate in terms okay. of how I view the fight, but mm. but I but I hope the bookmakers would look at Valdez's record and make it closer to even money so that I might be able to bet Stevenson at like right. said like a minus two forty type of price. But uh, no such luck with with these prices. I find this a tough fight to find value on. Indeed, indeed, and, and I don't think it's overthinking or overanalyzing things to if you to reassess Valdez's win over Bichel. Um So what we do in boxing, right? I mean, the sport isn't static. We're always trying to assess the quality of a boxer or. Of a win in the light of how opponents have fared in other contests and it's just an ongoing organic thing you're constantly reassessing the quality of wins in the light of new information as it develops and that's just being smart and objective i think otherwise pound for pound lists and divisional rankings would write themselves and we wouldn't need to vote on the hall of fame people right. would just show up and be inducted <laughs> um look after we, as we discussed after Bachelt lost to Nakatila, there are those, such as our buddy, buddy Redman Edwards, mm. who felt that the, the time was coming and that once Bachelt, you know, moved up from 130, he was going to face trouble. You could equally argue that the defeat he suffered to Valdez was at least partly responsible for the fact that sure. the next time out, he didn't have anything really left. Um, I like Valdez as a boxer. I, I first saw him on an HBO undercard at what was then the StubHub Center. And, and and then he was doing the kind of classical, pure boxing kind of style. I liked it. A lot of the people in the arena didn't like it. It wasn't a very StubHub kind of performance. And then he starts morphing into Arturo Gatti next time out. You know, he, he has that fantastic brawl with Scott Quigg. Then he's swapping knockdowns with Adam Lopez. He had... Fairly entertaining uh, outings against Jason Velez and then Bachel. And then he shows up against Robinson Concesau and was a stinker as a fight. And it carried an odor about it already because of failed PED tests. And so, yeah, Valdez, is, he can have very good, even great performances, but then he can right afterwards not have them. I, I think he's tremendously skilled and well-rounded you could make a case that stevenson is the more naturally talented of the two but the valdez is the more skilled and polished um it's entirely possible that valdez is just one of these guys who raises himself against higher opposition mm. um look I i'd be surprised if this fight ends inside the distance but i do think stevenson isn't going to have it all his own way against valdez but I do think he will have his way ultimately against Valdez. And I do see Shakira Stevenson justifiably as the favorite. And I see him sort of winning a, like a 116, 112 kind of decision across the board. I, I just think, you know, Valdez, I think is a very good boxer, but I just feel like Stevenson's a little bit special and has that certain something uh, that Valdez just doesn't have. Yeah, agreed. And one thing that I want to add quickly is, you know, you were talking about uh, one's one's ratings and assessments not being static. Uh, I still keep a pound for pound list. Neither of these fighters are quite in my top 10 right now. There are very few results in this fight that would not result in the winner cracking my top 10. 
and probably not even at the very bottom, probably somewhere around number eight, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. guessing. The only ways the winner doesn't get on the list are if the fight is a total stinker, just like a defensive snooze fest where nobody lands anything of consequence and we kind of come away unimpressed by both of them, or a bad decision. You know, one guy appears to right. deserve it narrowly, the other guy gets the nod, so I'm disinclined to bump either into the top ten. But I'd say I'm about 95% sure this fight is producing a new top 10 pound for pound fighter. And like you, I'm reasonably confident that fighter will be Shakur Stevenson. Yeah. All right. The other main event Saturday night is on the other side of the country at Madison Square Garden. Streaming on zone, arguably the biggest and best fight in the history of women's boxing. Katie Taylor, 20-0 with six KOs versus Amanda Serrano, 42-1-1 with 30 KOs. Unlike Stevenson Valdez, this is a fight without a clear betting favor. It's just about even money at the sports books. Eric, are there any betting angles you like on this one? And I said, arguably the biggest and best fight in the history of women's boxing. Would you argue for or against either of those labels? Yeah, taking that second question first, I think it's undoubtedly the best fight on paper in the history of women's boxing. Well, let's be honest, it's not a long and glorious history. The sport was sort of a sideshow for a while. It's only been taken seriously for the last 20 years or so, and the talent pool keeps deepening. And there's just never been a fight between two boxers this good, this closely matched, both right in or around their absolute primes. If Clarissa Shields versus Savannah Marshall happens, that would be arguably just about equal to this. Um, But for now, yeah, I, I think definitely best women's fight ever and biggest except maybe for two fights that had bigger name value and got a lot of mainstream attention in the U.S., Leila Ali versus Jackie Frazier lied and Leila Ali versus Christy Martin. So depending on how you define bigger, those might have been bigger. Um, As for betting angles, it's interesting. Like Fundora Lubin, this fight opened dead even at some books. No underdog, minus 110 each way. It has moved just a bit in the direction I would have guessed it would move because I've slightly favored Serrano all along. Now the books do also. I'm seeing her at like minus 135, Taylor around plus 110. Still damn close to even money. Mm -hmm. Um, Two bets that have my attention. One I actually made several weeks ago. I got Serrano by decision at plus 200. That's now plus 180. It's come down Mm. slightly, but still... I think a decision is much more likely yes. than a knockout in this one. And then, uh, you know, I haven't bet this yet, but I think I will. I have to drop a few bucks on the draw. I'm seeing yeah. it at, at 14 to 1, and it wouldn't be remotely surprising if this fight ends up a draw, especially, you know, a 10-rounder with two-minute rounds. Very realistic possibility, yeah. I think. Yeah, 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 agreed. Yeah, I think... I, I made the same notes as you. You could make the case that those Leila Ali fights were the biggest in women's boxing. And, and I was thinking the only fight that I could think of that potentially in advance sort of had that expectation of a comparable level of quality was Clarissa Shields, Christina Hammer. Right. You I know, about that. two yeah. undefeated pros against each other. Um, that, of course, turned into quite a white, one-sided fight, and I just have a very hard time believing that this one will. Um, right, but I the, the, you... the weigh-in show for that was the biggest oh, the weigh-in best. show the in the history of women's boxing, without a doubt. Un- unquestionably, yeah. yeah. I-, I mean, it's, it's set the standard. Really. <laughs> right. People are still talking about it. A standard it. nobody will ever reach, if we're being honest. It's just <laughs> right, right. unattainable. Probably, probably because the people who hosted it won't be invited back to do another one. Well, that's what we, listen, we're like George Costanza. You nail it, you go away on that's top. Right. That's right. 
Rask and Mulvaney. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I do think when you consider the, the, the profiles of both women in their respective nations, the quality they possess, and the fact that this is headlining the big room in Madison Square Garden, I, I think that whole, you know, quality, uh, size, anticipation, all of that, I, I feel like this will probably end up having been the biggest one uh, that we've seen, that's for sure. Okay. Um, a couple of fights of note on that Serrano-Taylor undercard. There's the delayed 154-pound meeting between veterans Jesse Vargas and Liam Smith. And there's another top women's bout unifying the four super middleweight belts, Franchon cruz Desern versus Elin Sederus. Any quick thoughts on either of those? Vargas against Smith is fine. We've talked about it before because it it's been much delayed. Uh, a couple good dudes in a matchup of veterans that's better suited to be a co-main on this card than the main event on another card as it was originally planned to be um i'm actually quite intrigued by cruz deser and Cedros. um Cedros is good she's eight and oh but hasn't fought for a couple of years um i actually managed to mildly piss off france and cruz deser yeah. um i was hosting the weigh-in for ward kovalev i think one yeah i think the first okay. fight uh, Clarissa was making her pro debut on the card um and against Cruz Desern. Right. And and I was hosting the, the weigh-in show, setting the standard for weigh-in shows involving, you know, <laughs> right. prior, prior to, you know, that one, like setting setting the initial standard. And um I wasn't I wasn't supposed to interview Clarissa Shields, like it wasn't part of the deal, but I wanted to stay around on this stage to do it. And so I interviewed her. And then it wasn't until I realized as I walked away that like Cruz Desern was kind of pissed off. She's like, mm. why aren't you interviewing me? And um, but anyway, that's that's my story. But you didn't. Um, but you didn't get an angry phone call from her. You've still never an gotten that angry phone call from anyone. No, nope, nor has she missed me a happy Easter though. So we're <laughs> in that okay. zone. Uh, but since then, so Cruz Desern lost that. Uh, it was her pro debut as well. Uh, she lost that to to Clarissa on points, and since then has gone seven and zero, and has really I think made a pretty good reputation for herself as well. So that's actually a really intriguing fight, and I'm really interested in that, and I actually really like the fact that in addition to having the big main event, there's actually a really solid women's fight on the undercard as well. Yep. All right. Time to revisit a new and occasional segment on the show. It's called Make the Match. We featured it once before. The concept is that one of us comes up with a name of an active boxer, and the other has to come up with an ideal next fight for him or her. He you can pick the best fight from a pan fan's perspective and the best fight as a matchmaker looking to maximize the boxer's career progression. Although sometimes, this is a little bit the case when Eric asked me last time with finding a fight for Brandon Figueroa, the answer can kind of be both. Right. So anyway, Eric, it's my turn to ask you to make the match and showing... What an original thinker I am after you tasked me with finding a fight for Brandon Figueroa. I'm going to pick a young man who has an almost identical first name. Uh, Brandon Lee. Uh, mm. You and I didn't have the chance last week to discuss his outing against Zachary Ochoa. Barry and I did. Barry felt that maybe Brandon's stock had dropped just a wee bit after that outing and that maybe he needed to take a half step back to sort of, you know, build himself up a little bit. So what would you do? Right now with Brandon Lee, who's, I think, in an interesting spot. How would you match him up if you were his matchmaker? And if you were just a fan who just didn't really care and just <laughs> a good fight, what would right. you want to see? Hmm. Okay, so I've called up here a couple of uh, tabs on my computer. I've got the TBRB rankings uh, at junior welterweight, which is his division. Uh, he is not currently in the top 10 there. Still a little ways to go. And I'm looking at those names, and I'm feeling like, it certainly, as his matchmaker, 
we're not ready for that yet. We're not yeah, ready to take agreed. on the top 10 guys. So, uh, so I've also opened up uh, the box rec rankings, which mm-hmm. go a lot deeper. Um, and Brandon Lee there happens to be number 23. These are like determined by some sort of strange formula that nobody understands. They don't mean a whole lot, but, but there he is. Um, so let's see. So as a matchmaker, I want to test him a little bit, but I'd like to get him an explosive knockout. Ideally get him back on that track. Um, I want to put him in with a recognizable name if I can, Looking at some of these names on here, I'm wondering if a guy like a Jose Pedraza is maybe a little too much of a leap. There's a little too much risk there, even though clearly his very best days are behind him. So maybe I wouldn't go that high uh, up the rankings. Um, so now maybe I'm looking at someone. So now, so then a name that jumps out at me is a Victor Postal, but he could be someone who, yeah, even though he's faded, is just a little too tricky to look yeah. good against. Um, so let's scroll a little farther down here and maybe see if we can find, uh, another name that's sort of recognizable, well-known Ray Beltran. What has he been up to lately? Is he still somewhat viable? I'm looking at his record. He lost two fights ago to Richard Comey, then came back with a, with a win. He is, Ooh, he's 40 years old. I didn't realize he was quite that old, but that's probably as a matchmaker. As a fan, I'm not like, oh, my God, I got to see Brandon Lee against Ray Beltran. But I think as a matchmaker, that might be perfect. He's going to stand in front of you. You're going to have a chance to to hit him and knock him out. He has a name. He's challenged for titles. He's he's, he's certainly well known. I think that's where I'm going as a matchmaker. That's that's about the right level for Brandon Lee that you'd still be pretty confident he's not going to fail that test. Yeah, that's exactly where I settled on as a matchmaker. Oh, all right. Well, then, well, the shared brain comes into play once again. Um. As a fan, I, I think probably what I want most is him against like another somewhat young guy, um, not someone who's way above his level at this point. But you kind of want to see him swap punches with mm-hmm. another up and comer and find out which is the better up and comer. I'm looking at Richardson Hitchens, who we've seen on Showbox. Yep. That would be a fun one. Um, Mario Barrios coming off a couple of losses, still viable. Makes good fights, little little dangerous for Brandon Lee. Yeah. But as a fan, I think that tells us, gives us a pretty good sense of what we got with Brandon Lee. He's that's not quite a fellow prospect, but another reasonably young guy. Those are I, I don't want to go all the way to the top. Even as a fan, I don't think Brandon Lee against like Chon Zapata as exciting as it might be. I, I don't think that really makes sense as a fan. So and. Maybe Montana Love, but I'm. I wondered about Montana. Yeah, I'm not Love, sure about certain. the style matchup yeah. there. Um, so I think I'll I'll land on uh, Richardson Hitchens. I, I feel like you can't go wrong with that as like a co-feature on a Showtime Championship boxing card. Two of the top prospects coming out of Showbox. Let's find out which one is really ready to move into contender status. Yeah, yeah. The only the only other one that I thought of, and I think. I wouldn't make the match under any circumstances because I think it's much, much, much too dangerous. But just assuming that I was just a bloodthirsty fan who didn't <laughs> care about either man's careers, right. I I was looking at Subriel Matias and thinking, oh, yeah. Lordy, that would be, you'd want to sit down and watch that. Yeah, that's that's an outstanding one. And uh, yeah, I mean, the fact that I sit here and I don't immediately know who I favor in that fight tells you that's a fun one for the fans. Yeah, yeah, yeah indeed. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. All righty. It is time now for this week's guest spot. And in honor of our 200th edition, we have not one, but two guests, although rather like Eric and myself, they are best known as two sides of the same coin. Like us, they drive a Showtime sports podcast, but if ours is a clapped out AMC pacer, theirs is a smooth riding Bentley. They are, of course, the hosts of Morning Combat, Luke Thomas and Brian Campbell. Gentlemen, welcome to the wrong side of the boxing podcast tracks. I'd say uh, we're not so much a Bentley as the Chrysler that looks like a, a Bentley, the fake Bentley. That's, that's more about what we are. Right. There you go. You're still not an AMC Pacer, though. That's the important thing. Yeah, we're not a Dodge Omni. That's true. <laughs> and it's better to look good than to feel good, as uh, Fernando Lamas used to say. So, um, also fair. So you guys cover both MMA and boxing, but MMA gets by far the larger percentage of your airtime. I know Brian loves both sports, and we'll get to him in a second. But I want to ask you first, Luke. It seems like you love MMA and like boxing. Is that accurate? And and, and if indeed MMA is number one for you. Explain why. What what separates them? What makes MMA the preferable sport for you? Uh, it, it probably does appear that way. And in being in being honest about my preferences, I would probably say I like MMA a little bit more. But um, the only reason for that is like somewhat accidental. I mean, I was a casual boxing fan growing up. It wasn't a huge part of my life. But you know, I'm I'm 42, so depending on who's listening and depending on your age, I definitely grew up in the era when Mike Tyson was, you know, something close to Michael Jordan for a time, or, you know, the, 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 the evil version of it, or however you want to describe it, but, you know, a cultural force almost unlike any other. But I got into MMA in my teens um, through UFC 4. A family fan introduced me, and it was kind of a, you know, love at first sight and followed it from there on. But I actually tried to get into boxing coverage, um, I would say maybe closer to 12 years ago and had some success with it. I, I, BC and I have talked about this. I met him at Mayweather Canelo. I covered, I think I saw Kieran there as well. I covered, let's see, it was Amir Khan versus Lamont Peterson in DC where I live. And that was, and I've said this to BC privately many times. I, I've never had more fun and never felt yeah. more like refreshed uh, yeah. to be quite candid with you covering a fight than I did with Peterson versus Khan. But the long story short is I actually love boxing because it does offer, if you're an MMA fan, there's just certain things I think MMA does quite differently that people like it or they don't. And boxing offers an alternative version, like an epic boxing main event is pretty hard to beat. I would say most MMA main events, they have a hard time matching up with the thrill of a 12 round narrative. The only thing that may give you the appearance that I just like it is because I have to cover it. And I missed many, many years being um, when, when I, I, when I was with SB nation proper, I could do whatever I want. And then they bought MMA fighting and then made me an editor there. And I had to just focus on MMA for year after year after year. And I lost track. 
So the problem is it's harder for me to enjoy it because I have to cover it in a way where I'm always playing catch up and kind of leaning on BC. And it takes a little bit of the fun away because I'm, I'm always under pressure. Um, but, but to be quite candid with you, I really, really love boxing. I really respect it. And it does bother me that there are folks inside of MMA who just don't see the beauty that, you know, a lot of us do. Right. And, and I then, clean that up a little bit. I told him <laughs> in the years that he missed Garcia Salka would be a great starting <laughs> to watch. Right. And uh, Karen was at Mayweather Canelo, him and I conned our way onto the sports center set to do a <laughs> so digital hit back when we that did. was not a thing. And they basically said, who the fuck are you? So great times, Karen. Great, great <laughs> yep, to be back yep, with you. Yep. <laughs> and then following on, Brian, from turning out, I was wrong. Luke has a, a loves both sports uh, almost equally. I, I know it's a tough call for you, or at least I assume it is. Do, do you, if you had to pick one sport of the two to watch for the rest of your life, uh, do you have a leaning on that? Yeah, I, I'd pick boxing because it was my first love. I mean, really, like when I was a toddler, right? It was like, like you know, mm. Rocky movies were on fire. Mm. Uh, by the time I was five or six, Hag tell me if I'm wrong, guys. Hagler Hearns was replayed on ESPN after school, just like Ali <laughs> Frazier 3 was about every other day. I mean, it was hard not to get bitten by that that bug. But here's how I always like to say it. Bach, and, I, and I'll say this, John Anik, the voice of the UFC, says the same exact thing. I'm, I'm good. I, you know, I used to work with him at ESPN, and, and, and I'm lucky to be good friends with him. When boxing is at its very best, nothing touches it in the entire sporting world, mm, right? Yeah, that's right. That's but right. Day to day, is MMA a better cover? Is the UFC just on top of what they're doing? Uh, absolutely. So I get the best of both worlds. If I had to pick one, I'm going boxing. But I'm also the first one to tell you that if you're going to like some boxing along with us, <laughs> roll up your sleeves because it's about to get <laughs> shitty in here. Okay. You're going to you're gonna have to swim through it to get to the end of that tunnel yeah. with the Shawshank guys on the beach. You know, yeah. Fair. Um, and obviously one very obvious contrast between MMA and boxing is the governance of, of the sports, you know, boxing, as we all know, is often described as like the wild West of sports or the red light district of sports, which as someone who's written about the wild West and actually lived in a red light district, I find insulting <laughs> to both, to be honest with you. But, um, MMA, you know, if, if boxing sort of anarchy, MMA in contrast seems to be more of an oligarchy. Um, and, and I'm kind of curious what you guys think. You know, I'll start off with you, Luke. Do you feel that boxing would be better off if it had a Dana White type figure in charge, someone who could make, you know, all the shots? And if there was like that one big governing body that at least made sure all the fights were taking place or not? You know, the, the, the question would be then better off for who? Mm, um, right. here's the thing. It's like, listen, the UFC has a dynamic product. Okay. They are excellent promoters. They are. I mean, they've made mistakes and they've had bad, you know, judgment, you know, a, a, a more than a few times, but in general, they are very capable, solid, good promoters at times, quite excellent. Um, but the reality is, you know, you don't really have to, you, I mean, you have to encounter these in boxing too, but you know, when you see MMA fighters at the end of their run, and I've been covering MMA for, you know, about 15 years at this point, when you see these guys at the end of their run and they didn't get a chance to maximize their wealth, you know, we all know the truth that you could have maximized your wealth and then just spent it just the same. But folks ask me if I have any like trepidations about covering MMA because of the way pay is structured and how it is not properly, um, you know, the fighters don't get their fair share in my judgment. <clears throat> it, you don't realize how important that, that deal is. The deal is if the guys are going to put themselves through this, if we're going to license this activity with the government, there has to be something of an equal trade with it. 
And if you're not getting the pay that you're supposed to on the other end, which I also realize can you know happen in certain ways in boxing, but they do have quite quite justifiably and quite literally more protections. Um, it, it it bothers me. It, it, it bothers me. And Dana White is a capable promoter, which I know your question was more about that. Um, but I don't. He's he's not the solution to whatever's happening in boxing. I have to tell you, for all the gripes about boxing, I don't. And there are a, a, a billion of them. But as an MMA guy who has, you know, in, in many ways had a somewhat of a passion for it, and then had to learn on the job. I, you guys are kind of been in it longer than I have, so maybe you're more jaded. But I don't mind some of the rigmarole that people have to go through because there is just a little bit more justification at the at least at the higher end for the activity taking place in and of itself. And you don't really have to think about those things um, because you're so used to it. But in MMA, man, when you see these like, you know, main event guys, <laughs> you just can't believe sometimes what they're getting paid. It is mm. difficult for me to imagine that this is something that boxing should copy. Although I recognize that because the UFC has such control and then they are go-getters, they are very much in charge of their, their game and, and they're on top of it. Um, they, they, they can put out a product that is very much in alignment with fans' interests, and so you get less friction. But you get less friction. It, it's not free. There's no such thing as a free lunch, and you get less friction because they have significant control over the industry. Mm. Can you give us an idea? Like, I have no idea what, say, a main eventer on, on your average UFC pay-per-view would, would get paid. Do you, is, there, is there a rough idea for sure. that? I mean, yeah, BC can speak to this too. Uh, but like the basic idea you always have to keep in mind, we now we now verifiably know this is well established mm -hmm. that UFC fighters get on a uh, year to year between 19 to 20% of gross revenue. That's what they get, right? They get they get less than a quarter. And so now that that can be handed out in different ways. The, the, the more popular you are, you can make a significant amount. If you're Israel Adesanya, the UFC middleweight champion, who in his weight class is undefeated and a rising star, he will make several million, probably five million potentially up, uh, up to about, which is not certainly what you would hear for Tyson Fury or whatever, but you know a decent amount. Um, and then you have fight night uh, main events. They're going to be in the like low hundreds of thousands, uh, or in certain cases high tens of thousands, depending. But there's also bonus structures and whatnot. So the pay depends on who you are and what kind of show you're on. Um, but it works something like that. Yeah, but the fact that in the UFC you can get established champions. They may not be a big star, right? But they're established champions in a name. And their released pay that they're making, which is always, you know, part of Dana White's secret strategy, right? You'll release publicly less than they're actually making. So no one actually knows. But still, when their released pay is, you know, $200,000, $150,000, they're an established champion headlining a pay-per-view. You know this pay-per-view is doing six, seven, hundred, eight hundred thousand buys. That's when it hurts when you're covering <clears> it, when you know what can be done on the boxing side, what should be done on the MMA side, and it's not getting there. Hmm. This is probably an oversimplification, but I remember talking to a, a veteran fighter way back when I started getting into it, who said, basically, there was no middle class left in terms of boxers, right? Like you're either at the top end and you're earning a bunch of money, or you're one of those crowd at the bottom who's scrabbling for whatever you can get. It kind of sounds from what you're saying as if UFC is almost exclusively middle class and, and there's nothing at either end so much. Is that fair? I don't know. I like to say that that there is, I like to say the same analogy that there's no middle class in the UFC and that's the okay. problem. There's they've established a system in which there are haves and have nots and the in the why the reason why that system in my opinion works so well is that when the ha have nots finally become the haves either by winning a championship or by establishing themselves as an exciting main eventer they don't want to fight on the front lines for the people that are still the have-nots because they finally got here through blood, sweat, and tears where they're consistently making 400, 500,000 per big fight or maybe in a really big fight with the pay-per-view points they can get one or two million. They're at the point where they're like, I finally got what I deserved. 
So that prevents without a middle class, a real unionizing fight, in my opinion, because everybody's trying to get over that line. And when they do, they're like, I made it. I'm good here. Mm. Obviously, there's instances, John Jones, Francis and Ghana, which have furthered the fighter pay conversation. But yeah, there's still a problem. But I think when you're a fan, not a journalist, when you're a fan and you're a boxing fan and you look at the matchmaking control that the UFC has, that to me is still to this day the major difference between the two sports, the lack of organization in that regard where, where the elite, which is the UFC and the MMA space, can essentially make the best, fight the best, or tell them to go, as Luke would say, pound sand and go find another job. All right. Well, you mentioned haves and have-nots. Uh, in podcasting partnerships, sometimes there are haves and have-nots. Uh, K- Kieran and I had a little off-air running joke for a while about which one of us was the A-side, although I think, sadly, what we've learned <laughs> over time is that we're both the B-side. Um, meanwhile, your show seems pretty even-handed. No A-side, no B-side. But... Now Brian's a TV star calling live fights on Showbox. Luke, any concern that he blows up and morning combat becomes BC and that other guy? You know, I I would like to tell you that I have always imagined Brian Campbell is destined for failure, but he keeps proving me wrong. It's unbelievable. I mean, here's the thing. I'm actually like glad for him because I actually think it only helps the show, to be quite honest with you. Uh, I mean that quite sincerely. Um, certainly it's motivating for me as a partner, like, uh, you know, he's on TV and it would be great if, uh, at one point I can earn my opportunity to join him, not maybe on that show or whatever, but like, you know, it's, it's, it's always good to be surrounded by people who are working hard and being successful. And generally I, I have to say this too, like, I, I, it, I can't overstate this. BC is a giant help for me when it comes to, you know, imagine you guys had to start covering MMA and you just happened to have a friend who, you know, knew everything there was to know. And you could just call them up anytime and ask them anytime and they could give you, oh, watch this fight, pay attention to this round, watch this author. It's ridiculous how helpful it is. So I'm only grateful for it. And the truth is also, you know, BC and I, we've had very different lives. But the, the reason I think MK works a little bit is we arrived at the same position from very different routes. Yeah. But the one thing that might be underlying both of our journeys is we had to eat the, the giantest of shit sandwiches to get here. So I yep. can't hate on his struggle. The dude earned it. He earned it. He's a dirt bag, but he earned it. <laughs> and look, but he's we, your dirt bag. We, right. I am a dirt bag. And we don't hide from the fact that, as you mentioned, like I think you mentioned off the start, our audience is probably 70% MMA. And it may be even more than that, to be fair. We inject boxing and in. I like to push it in. Luke has been welcoming of it. Showtime loves it, of course, that we cover the big time events. But um, because of that, and because let's give Luke a round of applause, independently he built 100,000 followers on his own YouTube channel and his mm-hmm. own personal name. He's He is the A-side of this show. Of course, I like to make the jokes that, you know, he's the steak, he's the piece of meat people come into the restaurant to buy. Maybe I'm the sauce you put on top that you go, oh, shit, I never knew I needed that. But come on, at the end of the day, this guy's very successful. I'm, I'm pleased to be joined with him and steal a little bit of his thunder. All right. You may, you may have to adjust that analogy, though, slightly for uh, a, a pescatarian who's lactose intolerant and a vegetarian that you're talking to right now. <laughs> the, 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 we might like the sauce more than the steak. Uh, that's that, that's what it is but just don't eat your steak well done with ketchup okay please don't <laughs> okay. Do that. Right. Yeah, exactly definitely not um all right let's get a couple of quick boxing takes from you um following errol spence's really impressive uh stoppage of Odenis ugas a week ago uh the 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 drums are beating ever louder now for him against Terence Crawford. And it really does feel as if any of those kind of political obstacles that are in the way, like we were just talking about with the way the boxing is, uh, have gone now. There's, there's really no reason for this fight not to happen. Assuming it does happen, uh, BC, let's start with you. Who do you favor right now and why? 
Oh, I love that question. And it will happen. And it will happen this year. My optimism levels are so jacked up right now. You know, basically I'm like Fernando Vargas in the Oscar fight. Only I don't think his uh, (laughs) optimism levels were what were jacked up in that one. But uh, look, here's the deal. I've been like everyone else. And this is not dissimilar to the five and a half years of the Mayweather Pacquiao build as painful as that build was when you wanted the fight. Now, I think a lot of us were, were kind of going, Oh, I'm a Manny guy early. I'm a Floyd guy. I think for the, I started out being a Spence guy if these two ever faced off, but I got seduced by what Crawford was doing once he got to welterweight. Now the problem with that is his domination at 147 did come at a lighter matchmaking than Spence was facing. And that's just due to the politics of boxing and who was available. No disrespect for blown away Jeff Horn or Wash Kell Brook, but you know, that's not prime Sean Porter, you know, prime Kell Brook and everyone else that Errol Spence has fought. I think that I always explain it like this. Errol Spence is a 10 out of 10, although he's a southpaw, in the traditional orthodox way of boxing. He's completely well-rounded. He can box, he can punch, he can brawl, he can outthink you, he can do everything. But Crawford's the abstract painter. He's the guy who can switch stances and just come up with something that you're like, wow, I didn't know he had that gear. I didn't know he had that combination. I didn't know he had that. I've been a Crawford guy for about two, three years, two years now. But man, when you see Spence, and I harped on this all throughout fight week, when you see Spence coming off the accident, the injury, the time off, all that, and saying, I'm better at 32 than I used to be. And you're like, all right, yeah, yeah, I'm sure you are, bro. That's a nice thing to say. He might be. I mean, the difference between the Ugas victory and all of the great Spence victories before all of this trouble outside the ring is essentially that his motor and his intention, forget 10 out of a 10, they're like a 25 out of 10 in terms of he's now going in there to finish and knock the other guy the hell out. And he's using all those great skills he already has. If he brings that same intention, desire, and motor into a Crawford fight, it's, I think we are where we should be. And that's saying, I don't know how that fight ends. I don't actually know how it looks like. 50-50 fights are, are supposed to be 50-50, right? You don't actually know who's going to win. And that's why I can comfortably put on the hyperbole hat and say, this is our generation's Hearns Leonard, De La Hoya Trinidad, whatever, Mayweather Pacquiao, because it really is. And it's late but I don't think it's too late. So my answer is I have no freaking idea who's going to win that fight. And as Jake Hager once famously said into a Bellator microphone, I'm rock hard with emotion right now over that fact. In fact, guys, I have a phoner. (laughs) Can you believe I've wedded my fortunes to this? Amazing. Amazing. I would say a couple things. First, I would say that I have a hope and it probably is unrealistic because they haven't even made one. But I think you would actually get, you know, if you think about the idea that we could maybe get two or three of them, I know that's insane to say because it's been so hard to make one. But, it, you know, once they break the seal and if it does well at the box office, I actually have a, a faint but real hope that um, they could actually do it a couple of times because I think you might actually get a couple of different answers if they do, mm. which is which is interesting to think about. Um, for me, um, I, I would say this. Errol Spence is a is a power drill. Um, he he gets right to work early with a very clear, precise, and well intentioned game, and he steadily applies it even as um, he makes adjustments in the form of the offense and what he takes away from his opponents. And it is an unrelenting pace, and he just absolutely. I mean, he could dig to China if they let him. I mean, it's that sort of a 
a, a pressure and a consistency. And, uh, and beyond that, I think people don't quite understand how clever he is. Um, his, his ability to use hand traps, pins, uh, his inside wrestling with his shoulder. You saw that in the Ugas fight going side to side to side. It was incredible to watch that. He is, to me, I think the best welterweight on earth, or at least the guy who has proven more at this weight class than anyone else. Um, I don't think that the record that Bud has, in, uh, just given what he was offered or however it worked out for him at top rank, you know, like where is Errol Spence's recent equivalent of the con fight? I, you know, it just doesn't really exist, right? So he's done more. What I will say, though, is Bud Crawford is a genius. Um, he is a, an, a master craftsman in every sense of the word. And he takes more risk. Now, it's a little hard to say because Spence took a lot of risk in, in, uh, in a lot of the ways he was fighting Ugas. But <clears throat> I, I think that you could look at the record of Bud Crawford and you could make an argument that he has consistently over time put himself in a little bit more peril through the course of his career in order to get the, the, the shot he want or the finish that ultimately followed. I think he's much more of a sniper than Errol Spence. The Kell Brook fight shows that. Um, and... I think he might have more tools than Errol Spence, but I, I had to tell you, I think Spence wins that one. I think he marches him down over time and just does more work with the time that he has. And that makes the difference in the end. Hmm. It's, it's interesting. I've been a Crawford guy for, for a long time. And, um, and I've always thought that Crawford had the beating of, of, of Errol Spence for the very reasons that you talked about, Brian. Um, this last fight actually was the first one that made me think, Oh, Okay. You know, maybe we've got something interesting here. And it almost makes me think we've talked about it taking so long. Maybe we're actually getting it at the right time if we do. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, I tried I tried to make that failed argument for Mayweather Pacquiao. It, it turned into a nice front page ESPN.com feature, you know, <laughs> the, the better late than never. But this is really the right time. It turns out it wasn't. This might be, though. This might yeah. be this fight. And, and Mayweather Pacquiao was the definitely the right time financially for those guys. Yep. Um, and just Luke talking about maybe we get two or three fights out of this, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, of Canelo Golovkin that we waited a little while and then it happened and we got an excellent fight and then it happened again. We got an even better fight and uh, we won't talk about uh, what we're going to get with the, with the third <laughs> one. Uh, hopefully we don't have to wait that long for Spence Crawford three. But one, one other fight that I, I want to ask you guys about, a big one coming up on Showtime in a few weeks is the Charlo Castaño rematch um i'm wondering which way you guys are, are are leaning and um here's a question that i didn't think i'd be asking a few weeks ago but is sebastian fundora a threat to beat the winner of this fight uh, luke I'll, I'll start with you which which way are you leaning in, in charlo castaño too and any uh, opinion on where fundora fits in man i gotta tell you i have slept on fundora and so mm. I've, it's like every step of the way i've been like oh he's just gonna get i have to tell you that body type in mma those dudes get murked Right. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like you can't, <clears throat> those guys don't last very long. So he has, I, I had a natural bias, right? Un unfairly, mm. but I got to tell you, I was blown away in his last performance. I, I did not think he was capable of that, to be quite honest. I thought Lubin was going to march him down and really, yeah. and, he, and, and Lubin did turn it around, obviously, but um, it, you know, he, he just got, he got turned into his face, got turned into hamburger. I couldn't mm. believe it. So he's much more of a live dog than I've given him credit. Even then though, it's still hard for me to see. I think, uh, obviously, Jermel, I think, has been um, a little bit underrated. Um, I'll say, I, you know, it's funny. I read the boxing press and they're all, they'll, they'll talk about Charlo and I, I watch a fight. And I think they're a, the Charlos, you know, they can be off-putting. Let's put it that way. They can be off-putting. And I, I wonder about the tenor of the coverage because I tend to think that, at least for Jermel, he, he, he doesn't quite get the coverage that he should in terms of how excellent he is. 
But I thought Castaño won the first one, to be honest with you. Uh, I thought his work rate, I mean, we all know the story with his game. It's not super sophisticated, but it is, it's just, it's just the rain. He refuses to let you find an umbrella. Um, So I thought he actually did that. And I, I have to tell you, I don't, I think Charlo has more tools to win, certainly the heavier puncher of the two. But I got to tell you, I, I think Castaño, if he can get a fair shake with the judges, and you know that's a big if, but I, I think he might take the rematch. I really do. Hmm. What I want to address you, that, that criticism to the Charlos or Jamel in general. It is there. Is it a reaction sometimes to like how much they don't give a damn at <sighs> any point about what they say? It might be, but I like to look at it inside the ring. I think our biggest criticism of Jermel in particular, after that run of knockouts he had against against Lubin, against Charles Hatley, where you're like, oh, wow, is this what Jermel Charlo really is? Is he doesn't throw enough punches in general. He doesn't go after it enough. He, he falls in love with his own work. It's not dissimilar to both Canelo or even Gervonta Take Davis in the efficiency. He's looking to not waste punches, and he's looking to set up that perfect go-home punch. And when he does it against a Jason Rosario, you're like, okay, I see how this works. But in a close fight with an aggressive guy who's not going anywhere, which Castaño proved, you can get into trouble. So did Castaño deserve a win that he didn't get the first time? I'd agree with Luke and say yes. But the key question in the rematch for me is who can do better based on what happened in the first one. I think Cassano overachieved from what I thought he was capable of in that first fight. And I think Charlo kind of did Jermel Charlo things, flashes of brilliance, but not a consistent enough performance across the board. So what I need from Jermel Charlo is a willingness to place himself in danger more often to throw more punches, to land bigger punches. And if he's willing to do that, and I don't really see evidence that he doesn't have the chin or the temperament to do that. If he does that, I like his chances of winning this rematch. I still like his chances of, of accomplishing what I think he, at times he already has, which is ending the argument in this crowded division of vulnerable but talented fighters who's the clear-cut best. I still think he's the clear-cut best, even though I just saw him lose to Castaño in a, in a disputed draw. And I think he still has room to prove to us that he's the clear-cut best. And as much as this Fundora thing is fun, I do compare it to Kelly Pavlik, although they're different fighters. Every step of the way, I'm like, okay, now the, the local boy makes good stories going to come to an end here, right? You know, yeah, yeah, he can punch. And, you know, he can box. And he's pretty tough. I and mean, we got a bad hairline, but he's a pretty tough guy. Um, and, you know, he just kept knocking dudes out. And I don't, I still don't think Fundora has that. Obviously, he's a different fighter, but I don't think he has that ability to climb another gear and end up being the undisputed junior middleweight champion of the world, right? It'll be fun to watch. We don't see fighters like this too often. They're unique. Um, I mean, did anyone never put a basketball in his hands? Is that what happened? <laughs> Is did yeah. Samson Lukowitz in, deflate all the balls throughout Fondora's life, and that's how we're here? I don't know, but we asked him about that actually, and right. he just said he was terrible at it. <laughs> right, he sucked at basketball. <laughs> that, right. that kind of hand-eye coordination, not his thing, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Beach also, volleyball. I mean, I yeah, don't but know. like you, you know, know, dude. I mean, if you're going to be that size, you know, you got to be. I mean, he, what is he? One fifty-four. Like he's got to be. Yeah. You need to be like one seven. I mean, a bare minimum, like one seventy one. You need to be a two hundred pounder if you want to get there and play uh, ball these days. Right, and and he said he could make one forty seven uh, if he had to. So, Jesus. oh my god, it's <laughs> insane. Have we ever seen a freak like that? I know we had Diego Corrales at one thirty was a freak. Uh, yeah, Paul Williams nearest. at one forty seven had Paul a freak Williams like body. Not bad, but Paul the, wasn't that tall. The one, the one who's was close. He? 
no, I guess Paul was probably like 6'2", 147, yeah. something like that. But the one, I, do, you, do you guys remember when Guillermo Jones was a junior middleweight oh, before yeah. he ended up at cruiserweight? Yes. He, he was built still not quite like Fundora. I, Fundora yeah. is the the tallest, skinniest he guy liked I've the ever supplements. seen in the sport. Old Guillermo, he liked, he liked to go to the pharmacy. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you that. All right, last thing. Uh, I think, well, actually, Eric thinks, but I got the question. So uh, we need to come up with the definitive Showtime Podcast Network washed rankings, BC. Oh, wow. well, what, does you know what does that mean? No, the three people. Well, you're going to get the, uh, the, the question. So I guess you can interpret it as you wish. You know the other three people on this call the best. Try to rank us from least washed to most washed. <laughs> And then this the will be their personal life and their demeanor, not necessarily their ability on the microphone, correct? Uh, no. uh, I, I was kind of thinking of it more, yeah, in the, in the big picture of life, who is the least watched All right, and the most Karen's watched. Karen's the oldest of us, I, I'm assuming. I think but so, too. Yep. Karen's a great hang still. I mean, it's been a few years now, Mole, but it, Karen's <laughs> a great hang. Rasky, you tend to call it a night, usually before, like, the Cosby show would come on, you know, and that's not a reference <laughs> to your preference or ability with women, but that's just to say, you know, you tend to have an old soul at, a, at an even young age. So you're, you're a little washed now. Now that's a, that's a spade calling a spade, a spade looking in the mirror back at a spade. Okay. Cause I'm washed as shit, but uh, Rasky, are you comfortable with me calling you the most washed of the four of us? I was going to, put up an argument for why I am the most watched if you didn't rank me the most watched. So now I don't even ha have to do that. But absolutely, the fact that I can't stay awake late, the narcolepsy, may now, has has someone been sli slipping a Mickey into my drink to follow along with the reference you made earlier? Oh, maybe, wow. maybe that explains it. Oh. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know how else to explain the fact that I cannot stay up once. Can we the sun edit this goes out down. after? I mean, I only made the Cosby <laughs> reference because you're a Philadelphia guy. Okay? Oh, Feel that was pressure. it. It was the Philly. Yeah, okay, yeah. all right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll say the one difference between me and Raskin is uh, Raskin. I am also horrifically like un un unbearably washed. Uh, but the difference is because I'm also uh, a fat ass at heart. Uh, I'm still good for a Taco Bell run at one in the morning. That's a <laughs> Guys, can I can I let you in on a little life with Luke Thomas? There's two things he does which are either alarming or awesome. He'll buy like a hundred dollars worth of Taco Bell at the drop of a hat at any point. He's like, "Oh, you interested? You hungry? Here, I ordered the entire menu. It'll be here in two minutes." <laughs> but then he waits up to an hour before eating the hot food delivered to him. Luke, I still can't get past this. Like, yeah. I would almost rather you have roofied me and came up empty <laughs> one time and I'll forgive you than having to get past this. I guess my, my, my food hot take is, I believe that most people who serve hot food serve it overly hot. That's just sort of the, where, the how I view the world. I, I can see a case for letting something cool down a little when it arrives, but if it sits for an hour, doesn't the cheese start to like congeal into the <laughs> it meat? It's soggy. It gets gross. Yeah. I, I'm not defending my actions. I'm just saying it's hard to think straight when you've had 57,000 Delta 8 gummies before uh, eating. So. Ah, all right. That, ex that, that oh, explains and justifies anything. Okay. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Most Delta users tend to eat it within five seconds, but that's okay. That's okay. Uh, you know, I'm just not thinking clearly. <laughs> All right. Hey, Luke, when you were kind enough to have me on Morning Combat, you allowed me to sign off by talking about the Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney, where people can find it and so on and so forth. Allow me to uh, repay the courtesy before we go. Tell us about Morning Combat. How often does it drop? Where can people find it? 
Yeah, thank you. I will appreciate you guys being on so much. And uh, Morning Combat is easy to find. You can go to youtube.com slash Morning Combat. Combat is spelled with a K. We, we refer to the show as MK. So Morning Combat spelled just like Mortal Combat. Uh, and of course, it's all over podcast platforms. We air three live shows a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 11 a.m. in the East. But we do a ton of stuff beyond that. I do post-fight shows immediately after main events for usually big UFC fights. But um, BC is going to do one for, I, I think it'll be out by the time this happens, but just as sort of an example bc will do one for uh, tyson fury uh, so we really give you uh, on the scene boxing coverage uh, in that sense plus we actually go to showtime events and so there's all times of all kinds of interviews and other forms of content that goes into it technique breakdowns all kinds of stuff so but the best place to get it youtube.com slash morning combat or your favorite place where you get podcasts and guys you know i've been around showtime a few years now this is a pretty decent travel budget can we all show up at the same event one time soon i mean what do you think well this has to happen yes this has to happen Yes, we're working on something that we think will definitely require, we'll end up with three of us being in the same spot. Ooh. Luke, you, you, you got to get there. there. There might be a, a big boxing celebration event in June that you might want to try and get yourself to. Oh okay, oh. all right. Duly noted. Does this involve the words <laughs> cantastota at all? <laughs> yes, it might. Maybe. It might. Okay. There, there might be a can of soda involved. Yeah. Okay, there it is. There it is. There Great might be. stuff. All right. Hey, thanks very much, guys. We really appreciate you coming on. It's been a real joy to have you. We've been thinking about doing this crossover for a while, so this was the perfect time to get it done. Thank you so much for putting aside a bit of time to join us. Thank you. Thank you, guys. guys. We'd love to repay the favor on the other end someday. All right. For sure. Anytime. That'd be awesome. Our thanks to Luke and Brian for joining us for our birthday celebrations. That was a tremendous (laughs) amount of fun. I really do indeed hope that we get to do it again sometime soon. That was fantastic. Yep, definitely. And 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 it just it just occurred to me for the first time uh, as Luke was signing off there and uh, say talking about the MK abbreviation, how close MK is to the guy from South Park saying MK. So <laughs> if they want to like do I work on some some meme branding there of that there guy go. saying MK, I, I think you, uh, you can have that one for free, Luke and Brian. Again, <laughs> this is the kind of analysis that you do not get anywhere else. No. It's, it's important. I feel like it's important for us to like toot our own horn occasionally. And there you go. Tune into Morning Combat. I'm going. I'm going. Uh, it is time for the news. And in terms of what boxing related story got the most mainstream coverage this past week, there's no question what our news main event is. When the most famous living ex fighter in the world beats up a fellow passenger on an airplane, and there's video of it. That figures to get some attention. Surely our listeners are all aware of this and have seen the videos. A seemingly drunk man, later identified as Melvin Townsend III, uh, was antagonizing Mike Tyson on a JetBlue fight. Uh, Tyson uh, alleges that Townsend threw a water bottle at him. There's no video or none that surfaced of that. Townsend denies it. Uh, Tyson turned around, reached over the seat, and punched Townsend several times while another passenger was trying to restrain him and, and seemed to limit just how cleanly and forcefully those punches could land. Townsend was left with cuts on his head. He declined to press charges initially, but of course he has since hired a lawyer, Matt Morgan, who of course offered some quotes to, of course, TMZ. (laughs) Um, Still no lawsuit has been filed as of our recording. Eric, can you have small picture and big picture thoughts here in terms of Tyson and Townsend's behavior and also in terms of what this says about trolling fan access to celebrities and all of this? So small picture, based on the limited videos that are out there, Townsend was clearly being an annoying drunk asshole, but yeah. it is tough to know if his behavior truly crossed the line. If he threw the water bottle, I'd say he did cross the line. We don't know if he did that. I I do suspect he will sue Tyson and yeah. he will get a settlement and that kind of sucks, but 
also there are consequences when you act with violence. Um, yeah. Even like the Will Smith thing. A lot of people were outraged that he got to hang around and accept his Oscar. But it's not like there were no consequences. There have been and will continue to be consequences. I'm a little surprised by Mike, honestly. Um, the Mike Tyson we all knew up until about 2005. Sure. Yeah. This, right. this is this is a predictable reaction from him. The more mellow Mike Tyson since, I kind of thought this side of him didn't exist anymore. Apparently it does. Mm-hmm. So big picture. Look, a lot of people are celebrating this. Hey, Mike got one for all the famous people in retaliation to all the Twitter trolls and keyboard warriors. It's about time a celebrity kicked a drunk troll's ass. Now maybe these idiots will keep their mouths shut. I would guess, however, that the opposite lesson will be learned. Unfortunately. Yeah. If this guy sues Mike and gets money, it's that answer to the hypothetical question asked a million times. How much money would it take for you to take a punch from Mike Tyson? (laughs) Um, This is not hypothetical. This will have people doing that math. Uh, I'm going to troll a celebrity. And uh, if he snaps, I make 10 million bucks or whatever. That's worth it. Uh, Hey, Brad Pitt, your wife is a whore. What are you going to do about it? And uh, see what, you know. So um, it's funny also this timing. It comes right on the heels of basketball reporter Adrian Wojnarowski getting a lot of attention last week for saying the rise of sports betting is causing fans in the arenas to lash out at players. Terrible take. I, I, I think it's, I mean, look, can it lead to some of that? Absolutely. To think that that is a big reason for bad behavior no, certainly in this case, this guy didn't lose a bet on Mike Tyson. Right. Uh, the top two reasons for bad fan behavior are alcohol and many, many humans being absolute assholes. And <laughs> as long as there are assholes having children and failing to raise them not to be assholes, this is an incurable problem in our society. Yes. yes. Unsurprisingly, my notes on this track yours quite closely. <laughs> do you have the word asshole jotted down a lot? I do. Actually. Okay. And awful is there okay quite a lot um have to preface any answer by saying that under no circumstances should mike tyson be punching people in the face outside of a boxing ring no professional prize fighter should punch non-professional prize fighters in the face outside of a ring um the potential consequences are far too severe but a couple of weeks ago, and this this relates to your point, we were talking about how Mike was tremendously calm in the face of someone giving him shit at a comedy show, right. even when the idiot pulled a gun. Like it sounds like Mike was the, the the calmest person in the building. You know, and you have to figure if we know about these two incidents, maybe there have been more, and we just don't know about them. Hmm. Yeah, as much as just about any other human being on Earth, Mike Tyson can't go anywhere. Right. He can't blend into a crowd. Right. He can't be left alone. He can't do the kind of things that we do on a daily basis. He's constantly a zoo exhibit wherever he is. And I'm sure there just comes a point where, you know, especially if you're having a bit of a bad day and maybe you haven't had the chance to have your edibles to get you. You know, <laughs> I'm being slightly joking about it. Right. But, you know, I I know what that does for me. Um, and you just can't take it anymore. And especially I think when you're on a plane, you're trapped on a plane. Right. You just you just it's just very uncomfortable at the best of times being on a plane. And and then you're trapped and this guy's leaning over and there's no real escape available. From what I could tell of the video, I would have punched the guy. Um, but and yeah, and here's where my notes came in. I put, yeah, look, people are, are horrible. And <laughs> and I think in the social media age, people are even more horrible or the awful people. And this again gets to your point, feel emboldened to be awful. Yep. 
Um, look at me, answer me, talk to me. I have questions. I'm important. I'm at least as important as you. And yeah, people either don't worry about the consequences of their actions or like you said, like they get punched in the face by Mike Tyson and it's on the internet and suddenly think, look at me, I'm on the internet. Not, oh, I really pissed off this guy and he punched me in the face. I should reconsider my actions. No, it's like, hey, dude, look at me, I'm on the internet. I'm really funny. <laughs> and yeah, he's, this dude isn't embarrassed or ashamed or even a little bit guilt-ridden. Right. He's, I've made the same note as you. Of course he's going to sue him. And of course Mike's going to settle because he can't be asked. And it's crap. And it sucks. And the cycle will continue. But um, yeah, I, I guess I could have just said, yeah, people just are terrible and left it at that, really. But <laughs> but yes, if you are a professional price fighter, you, you just can't be hitting people. It's right. it's, it's it's not okay. Um, but I'm, I'm sympathetic. Right. Uh, all right. Uh, a bunch of items to mention on our news undercard. Uh, most of it not happy news. The Daniel Kinahan story continues to play out. Um, it's hard to sum this up in just a sentence or two, uh, but Kinahan has been accused of being the head of a crime organization. He's the founder of the boxing management company MTK Global. And this past week, MTK announced it was ceasing operations. The CEO, Bob Yalen, stepped down on Tuesday, and various folks are suddenly going to great lengths to distance themselves yeah. from Kinahan, even though his connections to organized crime are not exactly new information. Um, in other unpleasant news, Oscar De La Hoya has been sued for an alleged March 2020 sexual assault. De La Hoya released a statement denying the allegations. We shall see what develops. Amir Khan was robbed at gunpoint in England recently. The perpetrators stole a watch that Khan said was worth about $100,000. We have two pieces of COVID news. Uh, Bob Arum contracted the virus, and that's why he didn't attend the Fury White fight. But fortunately, he's vaccinated and his symptoms have reportedly been mild. And there was supposed to be a boxing card in Montreal this past Thursday, but main event fighter Kim Clavel contracted COVID and had not so mild symptoms, and the card was postponed. Another fight removed from the schedule this past week, bantamweight John Riel Casimero was to fight Paul Butler on Friday, but Casimero violated the British Boxing Board of Control's policy barring use of a sauna to cut weight. Uh, Casimero got caught because he posted a video of himself in the sauna on his own YouTube channel, so <laughs> Casimero wasn't allowed to fight and may get stripped of his alphabet belt. Um, Showtime has announced that on June 10th, as part of Hall of Fame Induction Weekend, our home network will broadcast a four-fight showbox card from Turning Stone Casino, not far from Canastota. So we know Brian Campbell will be in Canastota that weekend. And Indeed. Maybe a couple of his buddies will be there. Hint, hint, yeah, tease, tease. Um, and lastly, the old guy exhibition trend continues as Ricky Hatton and Marco Antonio Barrera have announced plans to swap punches on July 2nd in Manchester in a show that will feature, quote, top music acts. Uh, Kieran, pick and choose as you wish. Anything worth commenting on here? Um, yeah, I mean, we've got to talk about the Kinahan situation. And um, yeah, to be honest, until he emerged as the center of, of controversy over the last, whatever it's been, couple of years, that year or two, that is the kind of industry has been as prominent as it has. I hadn't heard of the dude. And I, and I guess that's a testament to the fact that I'm not in Britain. Um, and B, it makes a huge difference, you know, when you are going to fights on a regular basis and, and encountering people as a, uh, and, and getting a sense of who's involved in things day to day. Um, I, a lot of credit is due to a number of British and Irish journalists, including a fair few folks who aren't associated with mainstream publications, who've done a lot of work to not only highlight who Kinahan is, but have 
kept beating the drum about his involvement right. uh, in boxing. So it's interesting, if not surprising, to see the kind of characters in the sport who are still sticking by him, the ones who suckled from the teat, who've gone awfully quiet and are busily deleting compromising tweets. Right. Um, but, you know, once again, it's boxing. It, it, there's a reason this guy wanted to be involved in boxing and didn't try, to my knowledge, be involved in soccer or anything like that. If you have the money and you want to be involved in boxing, you're welcome, and people will do business with you, no matter what your background is, no matter who you are, until the U.S. government says, you better stop working with him or you're going to be in trouble. Um, I, I don't know enough to talk about the specifics of Kinahan, who's done business with him, who isn't, whether Probellum or MTK were still involved with him, um, or whether Kinahan's going to try and stay involved. But it is just a commentary on how awful boxing is. Uh, it's like we were talking about with Luke and Brian. It is on some level the Wild West. Anybody yeah. is open to doing business with anybody, no matter who they are. And I don't know. When you have a sport that basically requires young men to beat each other to a pulp, it's hardly a surprise if the people involved in it are awful. But um, there we go. Uh, as for the rest of the news, I'll just skip through it because um, a lot of it's a bit depressing. Yeah. Um, that complaint against Oscar De La Hoya is quite detailed. Yeah. Um, it's very specific. And with that level of detail, it's hard to imagine that there isn't a, a lot of something there. Uh, if, if this is accurate, De La Hoya is in trouble here, and he deserves to be, um, I think. Um, other than that, yeah, well, these other items, not much to say. Barry mentioned last week that there would be a show box during Hall of Fame weekend, right. and that whole weekend is uh, shaping up to be something very special. So yes. there you go. Yes, send on that. send that segment on a positive. Uh, yes, that was so. the one. The one positive <laughs> item sort of snuck in there. Hey, <laughs> actual boxing card coming up that we can look forward to. So good, good choice to end on that. All right, let's end this whole podcast on a more uplifting note. It is top five challenge time. And uh, you actually unintentionally kind of uh, previewed this a little bit. Hmm. Um, following his victory over Dillian White, there's been plenty of discussion about where Tyson Fury stands in the pantheon of heavyweight greats. But what I'm more interested in right now is his place in another ranking list. This was a big night for British boxing. And Fury embraced the Britishness of it all, declaring his win to be for God and Queen and country. So... We've already talked a little bit about does Fury make it into the top 10 or so of heavyweight boxes? Does he make it onto the list of top five British boxes mm. of all time? And who else does? What is your list? Sir, hit me with your top five British boxes, if you wouldn't mind, old chap. And as an American making that list, I'm sure that the British listeners, British fans on social media will all be very generous and understanding with regard Completely. to my opinions and won't disagree Completely. with me at all or, or tell me that I have no business uh, weighing Ren in on such things. British boxing fans renowned for their calm <laughs> demeanor and objectivity on this matter. I have a feeling I'm going to end up having to reach over the seat and punch a few British fans in the <laughs> face when this is all over. But okay, good list. Uh, looking forward to uh, digging into that and coming up with a top five for you next week. Splendid stuff. Right, that will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, 200 episodes, and we could not have made it to this milestone without the support of the whole digital team at Showtime. So a shout out to the man who brought us on board, Brian Daly, to Matt Ryle, to Courtney Marg, and to everyone else out there. We will be back next week as we begin the countdown toward episode number 300 <laughs> with our post-fight thoughts on Stevenson Valdez and Taylor Serrano and with a preview Canelo Alvarez versus Dimitri Bivol. Until then, be safe, be kind, and be well.
The time has come for drag queens to save the world. RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars is back on Paramount Plus, and for the first time ever, I want you to use your talent for good for a change. <laughs> Eight iconic queens are competing for the charity of their choice. This is how you do drag. Who will slay it forward, win cash for their favorite cause, and a coveted spot in the Drag Race Hall of Fame. RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars. New season streaming May 17th exclusively on Paramount Plus. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply.